Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Jennifer Levitz, who's a journalist for the Wall Street Journal, who's done some reporting on the opioid epidemic, and in particular, Vermont's radical experiment to break the addiction cycle. So Jennifer, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. Okay. So earlier this month, you reported on, as I said, Vermont's radical experiment to break the addiction cycle. And that's a program that allows people arrested on low-level drug crimes to move on without charges, provided they comply with a contract. So can you tell us a little bit about that program? Sure, um, definitely. So uh, Vermont is, um, is a state that has been particularly hard hit by the opioid crisis. Vermont is, is situated uh, sort of at a pipeline from New York City and, and Connecticut for drugs. And so they, they kind of were going right up from New York to uh, Rutland, Vermont. That, that became known as, uh, as the heart of it. I think that was a big factor. And then um, probably in a, a situation that happened in a lot of places, um, there were, you know, first it was the, the opioid pills. And then there were um, a lot of efforts to crack down on, on people getting those. And it became, it became harder for people to get that. And so then the heroin just started to, to flood in from the big cities. Um, and, you know, that people could make a profit on it in Vermont because it was, it was just simple economics. It was easier to, to, you know, you had a ready audience up there. And, and um, so that is sort of the, the driving factor. And then it, um, just spread. In fact, the governor of Vermont, uh, Peter Shumlin, um, the former governor, he just left, he, um, he, he drew national attention in 2014. He devoted his entire state of the state address to the op- opioid crisis that was hitting the state, which is really better known for its sort of rural charm and leaf peeping and maple syrup. And, um, but it had become a real, um, a real problem there. And so he he directed the um, the legislators to, to figure out a solution that would uh, break this cycle, um, which so many communities have seen, where someone gets arrested for for you know possession um, or or even uh, you know low level dealing to feed their habit, and they are put in jail. They they or they get probation more likely. They violate that, um, and then they they turn around and they go back, and the problem never gets any worse. Um, and in the meantime. They, um, they, they, they have this stigma of, 
um, a criminal record, so they can't move on easily and get a job. And uh, it's, it's, it was just a cycle they were seeing. So they decided um, to create a program called the, the Precharge Program, where counties, uh, county attorneys could, um, could decide to divert people uh, into treatment um, and other tailor-made uh, contracts instead of ever being uh, charged. So much as elsewhere. Elsewhere, people started on the opioids, uh, the pills, if you will, yes. and you had pill mills. And yes. in particular, you know, so this is mid-90s kind of thing is when they started and they uh, got addicted. And then as they started to shut down the pill mills, in our case, that was uh, 2011 was when they shut those down. Uh, and then there was a mass you know, you just didn't have the availability of the pills, and so a lot of people shifted to heroin. And yes, yeah, I talked with a a, a guy who who told me that he used to almost exclusively take painkillers, and and he and his friends, you know, knew the doctors they could get it from, and they'd call them like, you know, Doc in the Box. I mean, and they'd go there, and they could say they had kidney stones or whatever, and they figured out a way to. They really worked the system, and he said at some point that became hard, much harder to do. So heroin was became became cheap and plentiful, and suddenly became went from being this thing that people thought of as just something you know some junkie down in the city to, to like into just kind of the suburbs you know people in parks and uh, rural communities and sure yeah okay very similar story yeah only more rural yeah. yeah. And right, so they wanted to figure out a way to. Um, you know, there were, were a lot of overdoses, and um, the courts were starting to see major impact of this. And there was a feeling that a lot of it wasn't just um, people being caught with you know possession or or whatever. It drug. It was it was like property crimes. Uh, you know, break-ins. Um, somebody you know stealing the checks. That kind of thing. They were linking that back to to the rising drug use. So they wanted to get at the problem, which was the addiction. So they gave the um, state's attorneys, Vermont has 14 counties, and they gave all these attorneys the discretion to not uh, not charge these people. Now, Vermont has always had a program where um, you you could have that discretion, but it was, it was typically for first-time offenders, uh, a young person, you know, these were these were repeat offenders. These were people who were cycling in and out, and so they they could do that for them. Um, and what's unique about it is, um, is is in a lot of cases, drug courts are you you actually get into court, and then you you may get charged, and then if you complete the program, the charge goes away, or maybe your sentence is reduced. Um, in Vermont, you are you're arrested. It gets sent to the attorney, and the attorney looks at, at you and says, I'm not going to arraign this person. I'm going to, to get them. I'm going to give them a contract and try to help them put their life together within a certain period of time. And if they do that, they will never go to court. It will be as if this, this, um, this didn't happen. You know, there will, there will be no, um, no record of a charge. Okay. So what are the qualifiers for that? Well, the... The attorney I, I spoke with um, in Vermont uh, told me they were they were looking for people who were kind of those tough nuts, what he called the tough nuts to crack, where they were coming in on fairly low-level crimes 
they were not um, they were not at high risk for being violent. They were mostly doing things like, you know, stealing or driving under the influence or um, dealing to feed their habit, um, you know, th- th- those kind of property theft, that kind of thing. And so it had to be, I think the, one of the main concerns was you don't want to let somebody out on the street that is violent. So they were, they were screening these people so that they were at low risk for violence. Um, the person had to accept, that's a big thing, um, because, um, you know, you have to be willing to do it. And uh, willing to agree to certain parameters, and you have to be willing to um, allow the the state kind of into your life because they're going to ask you a lot of questions, and you have to agree uh, with what whatever they ask you to do, which might be allow them to access to your doctor. They might talk with your doctor once a week. Um, do you want me to tell you kind of in this particular case I looked at what the contract looked like? Absolutely, yeah. And the contracts, yeah. as I understand it, would be potentially could be different for everyone, right? That's right. That's what's really interesting. It's not as if um, everyone needs to go into inpatient treatment or, you know, some of these people, many of these people have tried, have been in treatment many times. And so they're trying to figure out what is going to work for that person. So. In this case, this was a guy who, um, Todd, who he'd been arrested twice in eight days and um, he, for, for possession, he was driving. The attorney looked at it and his case and he just thought, this is somebody clearly in the throes of an opiate, opioid addiction um, and he just thought he, he needs to, you know, there was a way to, to intervene um, and maybe try to get him back on track. So. Uh, they met with him. They talked to him. Um, he had he had been in treatment many times, um, and he it hadn't it hadn't taken for him. And so and he also was not someone who he he had he didn't like the structure so much of some of the some of the treatment he'd been in. And they so they were able to work with him. He had a coach. Uh, he he had to get treatment. Um, he went to medically assisted treatment, Suboxone. So he went to a doctor. He got on that. Um, he was connected with a, he had a, a counselor that he had to check in with once a week at the county, and she would call his doctor, and she could um, have access to his, how he was doing, his urine tests. Um, so he had to be in treatment, and um, he, he went to meetings, and he also, they, they wanted him to be in work, and that was a big uh, a big part of it because they felt that having a job gave people structure and a sense of of pride and giving back to the community and in Todd's case he had always he'd always tried to work but it was more landscaping and that kind of thing where his schedule would be very unpredictable and he would have a lot of free time and so he went and got a job that was steady hours and um they would, you know, talk to him about his job and and um, make sure that he was going, and even ask to see, you know, pay stubs. And he had to have stable housing; um, couldn't just be sleeping around at different people's uh, apartments. Um, he he needed to get into stable housing, and there was a community service um, component there. Um, and and then the big thing is with the the contract is you actually have a, a date. A court date um, six months out it's out there so if you um, 
if you don't complete the, the contract successfully, you, um, you do face those, those charges. Um, and it's, but it's not a, um, it's also a, uh, it's not a set thing with, you know, failure, uh, a hard line, what is failure and what is success. What, what they look for is substantial compliance. Um, they realize that people might slip up and that that is part of, often part of recovery. So you're not going to be kicked out if you have a bad urine test. You can't fall back into a pattern of, of using, but um, you have to, it's substantial compliance, not, not perfection, because that's not realistic. And I think they've, the attorney told me, you know, if we had these people for two years, that would be different, but six months is not reasonable to say, you, you know, you have to be perfect. Um, so um, the contracts were different in different cases. There were some other people um, that, that he, he uh, the attorney actually wrote on their contract that he didn't want them um, staying at this particular hotel in town that was just known as being a real, uh, you know, d- drug party hotel. Um, I mean, you can't make them not stay there, but that was in the contract. Um, mm-hmm. other, other people had to had to send in money for restitution uh, to their victim. Um, so it was, it, was, uh, it was very interesting. There was inpatient treatment. There were a couple people that um, really, uh, you know, had a, had a hard time, and they, 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 would, they did have them go into inpatient treatment as a condition. Well, speaking of housing, uh, Todd had an issue with that, didn't he? Tell us about that. He, he and his girlfriend split and something happened? Yes. Yeah, I think you know it's it, housing was a really tough situation for him because um, he he was staying at one point with his his grandmother and her in an efficiency apartment, and then he moved out and he got his own. He, he moved into what um, he thought was a sober house where the rules were that you know there was no substance use in this house. But he got in there and um, his roommates, he said, were were smoking crack and saying, hey, do you want some? And um, he was just overwhelmed with temptation. And he had the wherewithal to realize that he had to get out of there. Um, in, fa- in fact, he, one night he almost slipped. He, he, he just said, you know, he just found himself um, uh, texting, almost like in a fog, texting his dealer and even getting in his car and then sort of snapping out of it and realizing what he had done. And then the guy's texting him saying, you know, where are you? And um, so he never, he didn't go back to that house. He went, he went, he started just crashing on different friends' couches. He got out of there. He moved in with his girlfriend and and her her brother was also living in the house, her younger stepbrother. And then one night the, the two of them got into some kind of argument and in defending her, he ended up getting in a fight with this this minor and hitting him. And he was really um, upset that he had done that. He moved out, um, but he was really worried because you know he knew that he had hit hit a minor. And he you know if he was to get another criminal charge, um, that would be bad news for him. So he um, the police did not get involved, and he felt that he could explain the, the situation um, if they had, but. It was definitely a stress for him, and that was another day where he um, texted his liaison at the county, and he just said, you know, I, I'm, have, I'm really stressed, you know, with a whole bunch of things, um, work, his living situation, his relationship, all these things that in the past he would have gone and used, 
that's what, that would have been his way to deal with it. And, and he didn't, he didn't use, and um, the, the counselor, she was like, this is miraculous um, that he got through this and didn't use. And, you know, it was miraculous watching his video. You've got that video that's out there where he yeah. discovers uh, his, his box or his toolkit, if you will, for with all yeah. of his, everything that he had. Describe that a little bit. Yes. So we had a, a videographer go up uh, from the Wall Street Journal and spend the, spend the day with, with Todd. And they were in his apartment, and he was just talking about his, his life, and he was... He was um, talking about his, his drug use openly, and he, he went and he showed, he had a box under the bed that he had locked, and it was his kit, and he showed what um, what it was. He showed, you know, there were uh, used uh, needles in there and burnt spoons, and it's all his paraphernalia. He was showing it to him, the needles, saying, can you imagine sticking this in your arm, you know, 12 times a day? And then all of a sudden he held up this little baggie, um, he goes, and his eyes just sort of were, were, went wide. He held it up to the light, and he's like, "Oh my God, what is this?" And it was, it was, it was a uh, heroin in a baggie that he had there, not thrown out, and that it was there. And he immediately goes over to the toilet, and he dumps it in, uh, flushes it down. Um, he. Um, puts a bunch of stuff in the trash, wraps that up. He's going to take it to the dumpster. Uh, he's very candid with um, the videographer about what, you know, he felt very good being able to toss it away. And at the same time, he's like, I'm glad you were here, you know, because I don't know what I would have done. Yeah, that was powerful. That was really powerful. It really, it really was. Hmm. Yeah, so, he's, um, he was really, uh, you know, he really shared, I think he really shared just how, how fragile recovery can be. So his date is February 27th, so he's coming right up on it. And so at that point, he'll, he'll be, his contract will be complete. And you said the contract, this contract went for how long was it again? Uh, six months. Six months. Okay. And then yeah. is that generally typical? Is it, are most of them six months? Uh, is that a standard? Um, I've seen three months as well. So this program is really to get them righted, get them pointed in the right direction, but it doesn't, you know, it's not to suggest that it is a holistic, if you will, program to uh, really see them all the way through. And, and by all the way through, obviously, I'm not talking lifetime, but that it, technically it, it would be, right? Because this is something yeah. that you struggle with for life. But, right. you know, statistics say between one and two years uh, of, you know, being clean and following the program is at that point your uh, your long-term success the probability of it skyrockets it goes way up right right um, yeah I mean I, I think that's what the attorney there said he's like I would love to follow people for two years if I could you know yeah but the program points them in that direction great so yeah, exactly tries to get them back just tries to get the basics of their life back in place you know their life has been so chaotic for for them statistics let's talk a little bit about statistics on this are there okay. any statistics yeah. on the effectiveness of this uh, diversion program uh in in vermont there was a study um there was a pilot pre-charge program in chittenden county which is vermont's most populous um before it spread statewide and um, in a 2014, there was a 2014 independent study that said it appeared to be a promising approach for reducing recidivism. Um, 
it, it found that 7.4% of the successful participants were reconvicted of a crime after leaving the program. Um, by comparison, about 25% of the participants who weren't successful and had faced their charges were convicted of a new crime after leaving the program. What time frame was that, Jennifer, on that? Uh, that was, I believe they, they looked at, um, I think they looked at at least a year after the, the program to see, you know, if they were reconvicted of a new crime. Okay. So the population that if you measure the general population um, is going to be reconvicted of another crime uh, within a year, 25% of the population will get convicted, those that are outside the program within a year. And then yeah. those that graduate from the program within a year, that drops from 25% down to 7%. Yeah, and they also noted that 25% is um, significantly higher than the successful participants, but that rate is actually low compared to what they they would normally see. And so that they said that that indicates that even in an abbreviated exposure to the benefits of some sort of structured uh, intervention may provide a positive influence. Excellent. So you reported on variations of the program in Maryland, Washington, and yeah. Kentucky. So did you mm -hmm. discover, discover any noteworthy differences in the other programs? Yeah. Um, there there's a program in, in Kentucky that's, that's interesting called the uh, Rocket Docket, where these are people who were arrested on, on drug charges. Um, now, there, this program is, is different because um, they, they plead... Um, they plead guilty to misdemeanors, um, but but these were people who had felonies, so they're pleading guilty to misdemeanors. Um, they, and then they've got to go into treatment. And the um, the prosecutor there told us that he considered it a success um, because you know he had say six hundred fifty people referred to the department um, after pleading guilty to misdemeanors. One hundred and forty two picked up new charges, mostly drug offenses, through October. Um, but he said that actually, typically, it's almost like 99% would reoffend because of their addiction. Hmm. Um, so again, what they a lot of them emphasize is that we were losing so badly before that this is an improvement. So with Rocket Docket, you said they uh, are basically trading a felony charge to pleading to a misdemeanor as part of the yeah. program. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. And then you wrap around some treatment, I, I take it, and some provisions. It's a contract kind of thing, and they complete yes, the contract, man, same thing? It, okay. That's right, mandated okay. treatment. Okay. And again, the stats, the difference, 99% of these felons would get charged again in the very near future yes. versus those that go through the program. It drops to what again? Well, it was about 142 out of, out of 650. Uh, wow. And this was kind of anecdotal. The, the, the prosecutor was saying that, you know, it's typically like 99%. Yeah. So you can Got see it. that it's a lot, a lot less. Yep. Okay. Now the LEAD program. Yeah. So LEAD is uh, a program that's ha that's happening in Seattle and um, starting in Baltimore, and it's been in Santa Fe, and it's an even an earlier intervention than Vermont. This is where p police have the ability to not even arrest someone. Uh, they. Um, can send them, decide not to arrest them, and send them into into treatment. Direct, they're sent directly by police to the social service worker who helps arrange drug treatment, housing, and, and other 
other services. So they're out there on the street, they're patrolling, and they go to bust somebody and they have an option to send them right into this program? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're, they're, they're typically, you know, they're seeing these people again and again, and they're just saying, I'm not going to arrest we're not going to arrest our way out of this situation. Wow. So what are the qualifying criteria for a officer to exercise his judgment and decide to use this? I think it, it, it really varies. I mean, you, you know, I think, um, I think they're seeing, they're looking at people who, uh, who, who they keep, they keep rearresting who obviously need help. And they're, you know, deciding that, they're just feeling defeated as police officers to keep rearresting and realizing that this person is not getting the services they need in jail. Hmm. So they're um, they're sending them, in. and that program has um, has. There's been some studies on that. There was a, a 2015 University of Washington study that found participants in Seattle's lead program were 58 percent less likely to be rearrested than individuals in a control group. Wow. That's yeah. that's huge. That's huge. What's LEAD yeah. stand for, by the way? LEAD, yeah, it's called Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program. Okay. And it's, um, you know, it's uh, one of the things that makes that different, too, is um, they, they definitely kind of state a willingness to let someone stay in the program, even if they, they use drugs again. Okay. So there's a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of they get... Um, some consideration for the disease itself. Yes, that's right. Um, any others of note? Yeah, there was. There's a one that's happening um, in in Manchester that's showing some promise. Uh, they have this program called Safe Station, where people struggling with addiction can walk into any fire station across the city and get help. They noted in January, for the first time in six months, drug overdoses have declined in Manchester. So. Basically, they're trying to take advantage of that critical moment when someone decides they want help. So one thing you keep hearing is that, that there's like a moment where people will accept help or want help, and it can pass. It can pass in a heartbeat. I mean, it just happens so quickly. Um, I've personally experienced that. And that's frustrating. I mean, you, you want to get somebody to help. And, um, right. So, uh, yeah. Right. So I think the idea is, you know, if you're getting people right when they've been arrested or they've had an interaction with police, you're better off trying to get them right then into help rather than saying, okay, you're arrested and now you're going to be in court in, you know, three months or whatever and winding your way through. It's So they're trying to just figure out a way to take advantage of that moment. Um, now, State Station is not, these people are not people who've... Um, who've been accused of a crime, but they're just allowed to go in. Um, and then um, the one that, that, that you, you and I were talking about earlier about um, the drug courts in Ohio that are um, ordering people to, um, you know, willing people to take monthly injections of the opiate-blocking drug Vivitrol, which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. And, of course, Vivitrol is the, the early numbers on it are really, really promising. Yeah, I mean, I think this all points to um, something of a culture shift, certainly from the war on drugs, where people are looking at it, recognizing addiction as more as a public health crisis and a, a disease, uh, and saying, you know, 
if you, if you had, if someone had diabetes or something, you certainly wouldn't say, you know, don't take medication. Yep. And you're, you're seeing, seeing more, I, I'm, I think I'm seeing more of that, don't you? you know? Absolutely. No, no question about it. Yeah. And that's really encouraging. Hopefully, a little bit of that stigma is beginning to go away along with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think um, it seems, out, you know, I did run into people who, um, who felt that these programs were, were not the best course because, you know, um, for instance, um, if you go through the pre-charge program in Vermont, um, you don't have a, you know, you're not charged. And so this, this, what's the, kind of the idea of are you punishing them? Is society getting a fair punishment? Um, and is that going to be, you know, are you, are you um, kind of preventing that person from doing something else if they haven't been, you know, if they don't have a record? And so I've heard that, that argument as well. Um, and, but on the other side, you know, the, the attorneys are saying, but it's not, we're not preventing them from coming back anyway. Um, we're not making people safer in the community by, by charging them because they're not, you know, they're just, they're just defending again. Well, yeah, I think um, one would say that by not taking other action that you are making the community less safe because the problem just continues to grow. So you've got more people out there that are in this uh, chaotic lifestyle of using multiple times per day and having to acquire uh, the assets, money, uh, by whatever means to do so. And so mm-hmm. by not taking a more compassionate approach, you're actually making things more dangerous out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, 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 the attorney I spoke with in Vermont said that he would ask, uh, he would hear from people, well, you know, that, isn't that kind of like going light on someone? And he would say, look, you know, if you are out there on the road, you know, what do you want me to do to keep someone who is high from driving toward you on the road, you know, do you, do you want me to do everything I can that I think is going to work, or do you just want me to, you know, and, and they, they would they'd say, well, absolutely, whatever is the most effective, you know, thing. Um, and so, you know, um, it's, it's really interesting. And it's, it's one of these issues, too, that seems to have drawn people together from both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, which is fantastic. I mean, that we definitely need that. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about some other programs. You've you know you've reported uh, quite a bit on the opioid epidemic. Have you seen other programs that have done a very good job of fighting the epidemic? Well, the ones I mentioned, I mean, I think are the main are the main ones that that I've looked at. Um, you know, I think, um, I think we're just starting to see a lot more of that kind of thing um, in different different shapes and forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I spoke with um, with someone out in, in Ohio uh, who, who told me that they were working with the drug courts to provide uh, coaches to people yeah. because their, their view was that, you know, it's just so hard to do this on your own and that you need someone you can call like 24 hours a day. And so they were pairing people up with, with coaches, and I thought that was really fascinating because, uh, you know, in Vermont, um, even though t- Todd had someone at the county he could text, and she was great. Um, you know, I, I would I, he would say sometimes like, "Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bored," or that was a big problem. He would say that he worried about being alone, and with his thoughts and his own worst impulses. Mm-hmm. Here in Akron. Um 
Judge Teodosio has done a great deal, uh, and, and he's gone out of his way, really, to incorporate coaches into his drug court program. And it's been very, very effective. It's, uh, it's, it's been, been great. And the coaches that he has have met some of them, and they are really passionate about what they're doing. I, I mean, it's a 24-7 job as far as they're concerned. And, you know, I, I guarantee they're not compensated for 24-7. Uh, but right. that's, what, that's what they do. It's, that's kind of their life's work, and I admire them. Yeah, that's really, it's really interesting. I mean, they're hearing a lot of I, – I, I heard of another um, lawyer or a judge in Vermont who was talking about getting grants to help these people that once they kind of on to the idea of what happens after, you know, and they're trying to go back out in society. He was noticing that a lot of people who've been on drugs for a very long time, you know, physically had like, you know, their their teeth and their they had just um, had real teeth problems. So he was saying, well, maybe we could help get grants to get them, you know, dental work. The idea that you know you you want to go back out and try to get jobs, but are you being hindered by your, you know. Sure, your 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 looks, or you right. know any right. any any one of a number of health issues that arise over yeah. time, over long term use. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's that's neat. Well, Jennifer, I I really want to thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners about uh, what you've learned and what you've witnessed? Um, well, I I just nothing. I think we really covered everything well. I mean, I just think this is. This is obviously such a, a huge problem, but I, I think there are so many people that are looking for for solutions and that there does seem to be a, a shift of looking at this as a, a disease that needs to be treated. And I think there's an awareness of how hard this can hit people and anyone. You know, it just, it's all over. It's interesting. I had a conversation with someone in Vermont and She's a lawyer, and she was down in the city working with um, a family there that had, you know, scraped together some money um, for some help. And she, you know, she felt bad even accepting it, but it was sort of a, a for like a mitigation video. Um, and she took it, and she went to a kind of nice neighborhood in Vermont that evening for a party, and she had a lot of cash in her wallet, but she didn't think anything of it, and she just left it there. And the next morning, she went to the bank, and it was gone, and um, she called the host, and they realized it was one of the one of their friend's uh, daughters who was an addict mm-hmm. um, in this nice community. And so it was just, I think, um, I think there, there is an awareness that this is this is hitting every corner and, and socioeconomic slice of America. Yeah, and hopefully that'll continue to build. So once again, Jennifer, thank you. Thank you so much, Greg. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. I look forward to staying in touch. Okay. We've been visiting today with Jennifer <laughs> Levitz, who's a journalist for The Wall Street Journal, and she's done some outstanding reporting to illuminate Uh, some of the programs that are out there in Vermont in particular that are helping to break the cycle of addiction. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 
With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.